Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. We are welcoming back Ellen Brown, the author of Web of Death, The Shocking Truth About Our Money System and How We Can Break Free, and the chairman of the newly formed Public Banking Institute, Banking in the Public Interest. Ellen has been on the show four times in the last year and a half. We're bringing her back today to talk about the S&P downgrade, the Bilderbergers, her newly formed Public Banking Institute, and what her concerns are today and how far along public banking has come. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Ellen Brown back to its rainmaking time. Good afternoon. Thanks, Kim. Great, great to talk to you again. Let's talk first about the formation of the Public Banking Institute. I'm very excited about it. You moved rather quickly to form that, even though it may have taken many years of thought. In January of 2011, this nonprofit organization was formed. Share about its mission with us, and what's your vision for the Institute? Well, I started writing about the idea of states forming their own state-owned banks on the model of the Bank of North Dakota in the fall of 2008, after the Lehman Brothers collapsed, I had heard at an American Monetary Institute conference, I just asked if there were any publicly owned banks, and somebody told me, oh, well, there's one state that has one at North Dakota, but it operates pretty much as, a, as an ordinary bank, so it's not really the model we're looking for, something more radical. But I looked into it, and I thought that North Dakota did a remarkably good job of maintaining well, they basically escaped the credit crisis. As time went on, then in the next two years, I kept following them. At first, there were four states that had never gone into deficit, and then there were three, and then there were two, and then there was only one, and that was North Dakota. It was the only state that actually totally escaped this credit crisis. They have a budget surplus. They've had a surplus each of these years. They have the luxury of cutting back on taxes adding new programs. I mean, it's the opposite of what everybody else is talking about. Should we raise taxes? Should we slash services? In North Dakota, they're lowering taxes and adding services. They have the lowest unemployment rate in the country, the lowest default rate on loans. Not a single bank has gone bankrupt in at least the last decade, according to the FPIC. So they have some remarkable things going on. So I kept writing about it. At first, I spoke about it at a conference in Michigan in, I think, maybe November of 2008. And then I wrote articles. And I got overwhelmed with email. And I was complaining to a friend that I couldn't answer all these emails. And he said, well, why don't you start a Google group? So we did. It's invitation only, you know, so it's people that are really interested in the subject. So, And we have 200 people in it. So that we had this very active Google group that was discussed all these issues, how you would set up a bank, what was special about public banks. So we kind of nailed down how you would go about it, what the precedents were. We did a whole lot of research and we argued among ourselves until we had all those details ironed out. And then last December, I gave three presentations up in the San Francisco area. And while I was up there, somebody said, well, why don't you hold a workshop? And so we did. We had a workshop of it was largely just to meet the Google group, you know, people that happened to be up there, but we invited some other people as well who were movers and shakers. And, and we got this really dynamic group. And just on that one day of the workshop, we decided it was time to do something. And so we decided that we would start this institute, which we did. At that time, I think there were four states that had, I'm sorry, it's either four or six, 
states that had bills pending for state-owned banks, which I think was instigated from my writing because there weren't any before that. But since we formed the Public Banking Institute, there are now 14 states that have bills pending either to form their own banks or to do feasibility studies to see what the possibilities are. So, and one of them is California, which we're really eagerly and actively working towards. So we're all volunteers. George Soros isn't backing us. <laughs> no Koch brothers. <laughs> just people committed to do something. But since I've read so much and researched so much on this subject, I know that's how all popular movements work. It's just people coming together that feel a sense of mission or a sense of we must do this. And then they buckle in and do it. I mean, it's so interesting to feel like you know what the solution is and you've got to get out there and that's what I do. I write articles all the time and try to clarify there's an initial resistance. First of all, you're going to get the professional resistance. Wall Street is not going to like this idea because we'll be taking their business. So the big moneyed interests aren't necessarily going to be on our side. And then from ordinary people, if you say you couldn't just walk into a, say, a supermarket and take signatures for an initiative because people would say, what do we need another bank for? Or I don't believe in banks or I don't trust banks. That part would sound legitimate given what's happened. I mean, I could understand the initial resistance and the reluctance to imagine that a bank could work for good. I'm sure you understand that. Yeah, well, but that's what I mean. You have to lay the groundwork. So we, there's a lot of work to be done. It's not like something that everybody has an opinion on already, like abortion or something like that, where you can take signatures and they know what you're talking about. Here, you've got to chip away at the concept itself. Also, people will think, well, you're going to be creating money. That means you'll be inflating the system. But that's not true. Banks create all of our money. But they're private banks. We, the people, should have that privilege and that right. And we're giving it away to private bankers who are, are not returning the favor. We've supported Wall Street, and Wall Street did not turn around and support us. In fact, they're exploiting us. I heard your interview with Peter Schiff many, many, many months ago. He hadn't read your book. He was yelling at you in the interview. He was saying that all you're recommending is the printing of money, and it was a complete degutting of what you're trying to do. Can you just explain that one little part for people that may translate public banking as a cause celebra as just a printing money machine? Explain the part that most of us won't understand about why it's not about inflating anything. Well, all of our money, except coins, is now created by banks when they make loans. We're not talking about doing anything that isn't already happening. Banks create all of our money. They create loans in response to a demand for loans. So the loan is paid off. It's really just you're creating a debit in somebody's account or an overdraft in somebody's account, and then they pay it back over time. So it all zeroes out in the end, except... The difference is the, the interest doesn't zero out. So say somebody comes to the bank for a mortgage. So they bring the mortgage, which is a piece of paper that they sign, promising to pay this obligation back and using the house as collateral. And so the bank puts that mortgage on one side of their books and says they have an asset of, say, $500,000. And then on the other side of their books, they have a liability of $500,000 because they have to make good on this check that you're going to write to the seller of the house, they'll get that $500,000 back, but they'll get another $500,000 or so back in the form of interest. And that is not created by the bank. 
So it has to be gotten by somebody else taking out a loan somewhere else. Since we don't make that many coins, we only make like a billion dollars worth of coins for something like a $15 trillion money supply in dollars. Almost all the money in the system is created in that way by banks. But the banks are getting the benefit of the interest and the fact that they have these huge interest charges, particularly on things like credit cards, means that somebody somewhere has to be taking out more debt and more debt. So this is what actually inflates the money supply. So if we can take back that function, if we the people, if the state can use its assets, use its deposits and use its capital as the basis for creating loans, it can lend to itself interest-free. So it eliminates that whole interest thing for loans to itself or for loans to anywhere that it wants to give interest-free loans it could because it gets the money back, basically. You're an attorney, and so some people are going to ask, do the states have the standing to be able to form their own banks? Anybody can form a bank. Walmart can form a bank. You just have to get a charter from the the state or the federal government. Of course, in this case, we'd be talking the state. And so you just have to comply with the requirements for a charter. In fact, the easy way to form a bank is to take over one of these failed banks. You can do that quite quickly. And they've already got the FDIC insurance, et cetera. They've got the charter. Now, a state-owned bank really shouldn't be FDIC insured. Bank of North Dakota isn't. And it's not because they don't want the safety of FDIC insurance. It's because it won't help them and it will cost them a ton of money. Explain that to us because the devil's in the details. So if you could explain that, we'd appreciate it. Okay. Virtually, the sole depositor is the state itself. Almost all the money in the Bank of North Dakota is the state's own revenues. FDIC insurance only covers deposits up to $250,000. Well, obviously, the state has far more money than $250,000. So that insurance is not going to help them. Meanwhile, the state is going to have to, it's quite expensive to get FDIC insurance. They'll be paying a lot of money, basically, to bail out other banks And they will now be under the thumb of the FDIC, which is basically a bunch of other banks. And if those other banks decide they don't like our bank, they could try to put us into receivership for some reason. How would that manifest itself, Ellen? Well, let's say California started, had its own bank, and California was making loans to itself. And let's say some credit rating agency that was funded by big Wall Street banks decided that this was not a safe and sound practice, that we shouldn't be lending money to ourselves, and therefore they downgraded us. It would just give them all this leverage that we don't need to give them because we don't need their insurance. It's not going to help us, and it will hurt us. Don't we as depositors somehow have a psychological comfort zone when we think, oh, FDIC insured? There's a lot of people that lost their money a few years ago, and they couldn't get their money back. Won't people think, well, you should have some insurance policy? What do you say to that? You're not going to have your money in the bank. It's the state that has its money in the bank. And the state of California could be the most highly capitalized bank in the world. This would be the soundest bank in the world. The Bank of North Dakota is extremely sound. I mean, the state itself would have to go bankrupt for its bank to go bankrupt. It's not a risk. I mean, it's no more risk than to be the state. 
Let's take California, for example. Some people will say California is running out of money. Do you accept that or do you not accept that? No, it's absolutely not broke. Just in CalPERS, the state pension fund, we have $200 billion. That's more capital than any bank in the world has. I'm not counting central banks, which can create money. And that's just one fund. And then you have, I think there's $71 billion in the investment pool managed by the treasurer. And then there's something like $200 billion in real estate owned by the state. I mean, they have a ton of assets. And California itself is very rich in resources. We're rich in labor. We're rich in brains, manpower, skills. At one time, we were rich in education, although the education's falling off. So we've actually got everything. The only thing that makes it look like we're broke is that we have this requirement of balancing the budget. And because of the banking crisis, the Wall Street banking crisis, people have lost their jobs and they're not paying the kind of taxes they used to pay. It's the same as in every other state. The tax base has fallen off. And meanwhile, the state is required to pay more out than they ever have been because you've got unemployment and, you know, all the things that happen in a depression. We're simply not working the depression right. First of all, we shouldn't have a balanced budget amendment. The funny thing was it was Governor Schwarzenegger went way over budget one year. And so they passed this simultaneous law that said, well, I can do it. You know, I can go heavily into debt, but it's on condition that no other governor after me does it. So that's why we have this balanced budget amendment. But we should revoke that because there's no need for a balanced budget it's only the interest that even costs anything for the state to go into debt. And if you can fund your own debt through your own state bank, you won't have an interest charge. Now, if, let's say, the rating agencies don't approve of the state funding itself, using its own deposits and its own capital to create credit to lend to itself, then you can lend, use that same capital and deposit base to create credit to lend to municipal governments. And so you buy the municipal bonds. Let's say you bought municipal bonds at 5%. By my calculations, California has enough capital and enough deposits to create loans of $150 billion. I mean, we're only $25 billion in the red. We can create loans of $150 billion. So let's say you use that $150 billion to buy municipal bonds at 5% interest. So that would pay $7.5 billion in interest per year. Well, that's easily enough to service the $25 billion deficit. That would be enough to pay 25% interest. So you could service the deficit and do a lot more besides with that money. I have a question about the concept of the state-owned bank from the view of citizens of the United States. They understand that private banking has practically defrauded the American people and continues to act irresponsibly and with criminality, in my view. I'm stating that. However, when you create this apparatus like the Bank of North Dakota and you begin to have state banks, what about people who say, if they're state-run banks, then state-run politics will be at the helm of these banks doing the things they're not supposed to be doing? and acting very much as inept and inappropriate as our Congress and senators and our administration, whether it's on the left side or the right side, it doesn't matter. It'll be a replica of how do you deal with people's concerns about that? 
that's why we're so fortunate to have this model in the Bank of North Dakota because we have retired people from the Bank of North Dakota that are consultants for us in the Public Banking Institute. And these are the most honest, well-intentioned, down-home sort of people. It's all family to them. You know, they're using the bank for what needs to be done in North Dakota. They're using it to serve the needs of North Dakota. Nobody gets any bonuses out of this deal. There's no advantage to them to churn loans. They have no motivation to make bad loans. And so they're very conservative. They only make good loans. And they extend a credit line to the state itself. There was one year in the last decade that the state went a little over budget. And so they just use their credit line with the Bank of North Dakota, which is their own bank. And then the next year, they got back on track. They use this credit to bail out. For example, there was a huge flood in the Fargo area, and the bank just stepped in. And first of all, they put a moratorium on foreclosures on the homes in the area. And they provided disaster relief so that they didn't have to wait on FEMA. They were right there with their own funding. And they have a state agency, and its purpose is to fund infrastructure. So I was asking where this agency got their funding, and I was told, well, they're guaranteed by the Bank of North Dakota. Now, it happens that the agency is just two guys who happen to be in the Bank of North Dakota. In other words, they're right across the hall from each other. So they're just using their money for what they need the money for. And I said, well, but where do you get the actual funds? And they said, we have different funds around that are sitting idle, and so we just draw from those. So they just do the practical thing. You know know what would happen in California. Somebody's going to say, oh, no, you can't use that money. That money's been earmarked for this or that. But in North Dakota, their goal is to serve the state, nothing else. That's their job. They're looking for how they can help the state, and that's what they do. There's no way that they can use that for their own self-interest because it's just not in the way the law is set up. There was the Commonwealth Bank of Australia that I would consider the most brilliant model. I mean, it followed basically the Bank of Pennsylvania, which is the original model. The colonial Bank of Pennsylvania set up by the Quakers in the turn of the 18th century, beginning of the 18th century. And so what they did was basically just issue money and and lent it to the farmers. And then the money came back, and then they issued a little extra, and that was enough to cover the interest, and they used that for the expenses of the government and so the interest basically paid for the government so they didn't have to pay taxes. Well they did that in Australia, Commonwealth Bank of Australia in 1912 when there was a global depression because in the 1890s there was a huge banking collapse. So in Australia instead of setting up the Federal Reserve like we did they set up a publicly owned bank and the bankers were concerned about this and so they made sure that they had one of their banker people in charge. Because he was a banker, he knew how banking worked, and he decided to use this for the benefit of the country. And so the banking cartel group came and said, well, you're going to need some funding for us. You know, you'll need to borrow from us because they expected to get control that way. And he said, no, we're not going to need any capital. We're just going to lend the credit of the nation because that's the way banking works. We're just going to lend credit. And that's what they did. And that was before, you know, the Bank for International Settlements had all these capital requirements, et cetera, these ways that they break banks at the knees. So a bank at that time could do what it wanted, and that's what they did. They advanced credit, and they funded all kinds of development, waterways, seaways, et cetera. They funded World War I that way. But then it became a threat to the city of London, you know, the British Commonwealth. 
anyway, the British Commonwealth managed to get control after a while, but for a period, they had this remarkable model where they were just funding everything just by issuing credit. Somehow it feels to me like the model that you are inspired by and really going for the replication of is based in a philosophy of integrity and a very deep, profound trust that when they're formed, these state-run banks, using this model, that they will act in the state's interest. How do you have such peace that that will happen the way you're envisioning it? Well, I just don't see that we have much choice. Congress at the federal level is totally locked up. There's no hope of doing much there, I don't think. But the states are still... You can still get into your state legislature and talk to the people and have an impact. And it's all a question of how the legislation is designed. I mean, we do have a legal system and we can, the the difference between a private banking system and a public banking system is you can can see everything that's going on. Um, I have read that public banks in third world countries, they're, they're quite, they're quite, quite often public banks in third world countries, and they are often corrupt. But that was when they could be corrupted. In other words, when things could be hidden. But now, with computerization, it would be quite possible to make every single transaction of a bank available for anyone who wanted to look. So we could keep them honest if the law was that this had to be totally transparent and available. Are you suggesting a kind of legislation for that kind of transparency? Do you think that would be necessary in order to build it in harmony with the public banks? Yeah, I do. The difference between the the argument for the Federal Reserve being able to keep everything quiet or the banking system itself being able to not tell you what they're up to is that supposedly the whole banking system is built on trust. And if people lose trust in these different banks, they pull their money out. Well, that's because the whole system is a fraud. I mean, it's it's a misplaced trust. They're hiding the fact that banks are issuing the money, money that they don't really have. I mean, they're pretending to create credit they don't have. And then they scramble around and they try to borrow from the other banks, you know, to cover their deposits, to clear their checks. And if for some reason there's a credit freeze, if the other banks aren't lending, as happened in the fall of 2008, and apparently is happening right now in the EU, so we could be heading for the same thing again. Um, You have these periodic collapses, which happen because of, they call it a failure of confidence or a failure of trust in the banks. But for good reason, people find out that the banks aren't to be trusted, that they don't have the money, and then everybody rushes and pulls their money out. But you could set up a public banking system where you were totally transparent. You would say, we're not advancing our money. This is not our gold that we dug out of the ground and we're lending it to you. This is credit. This is the credit of the people, and we create the credit as needed. To We give credit to credit-worthy borrowers. In other words, the credit is a monetization or an advance of money to people that have demonstrated their ability to pay it back. And then, so basically, we're just writing an overdraft in these people's accounts, and they have agreed to pay it back. We've got a legal system in place, so we know where to find them. 
will make sure that they pay the pay it back, or at least they'll pay interest until they do pay it back. So that that's the the purpose of a bank really is to oversee a legal agreement between borrower and seller, or I'm sorry, uh, borrower and well between the seller and the buyer, but the the buyer wants to buy over time, and the seller wants his money right away. So, so the bank is there to give the seller his money and to make sure that the buyer pays back over time. It's a public function; it should be a public function. It could be a public function, and if we're totally transparent in it, there would be no reason to lack confidence in our banking system. We would know what it was all about. I'd like to talk to you about the S and P downgrade. Let's talk a little bit about it. August 1st was the date that, uh, I think, let's see, yeah, August 1st was the date that the Obama administration made huge concessions in order to get Congress to agree to raise the debt ceiling. So this was all about demonstrating that under no circumstances would we default on our debt, even if it meant giving up Social Security and all these things that are the rights of the people. Um, and still, and this was to prevent a downgrade. And five days later, uh, S&P Standard, Standard & Poor's announced that they were downgrading the U.S. debt from AAA to AA+. And when that announcement was made, um, Treasury Secretary Geithner said, oh, this is a huge mistake. That and They looked over the numbers and, and found that there was a $2 trillion error in S&P's figures. And S&P went back and came back an hour later and said, well, you're right, we agree, but we're downgrading anyway, as if it had been decided. The downgrade was going to happen today after closing a market on Friday, <clears throat> no matter what. And so on Monday then, we had the biggest stock market collapse that we've had since September 15, 2008 which followed on the um, bear raid on Lehman Brothers on September 11th, 2008, interestingly enough, where the um, Lehman Brothers stock lost 30% on that day. So, so we had the largest stock market drop since then. It was 600 and some points on 8.8.11, which people who are into conspiracy theories have made something out of the numbers. But anyway... Um, and then on Tuesday, you would have expected that it would continue on down as happened in 2008, but instead there was this remarkable turnaround and it went back up by the same amount. So for eight days from, um, August 2nd to, for the next two weeks, there was an up or down, a roller coaster ride of 400 points up or down every single day. So it was unbelievable. It's like there are these two giant forces that are fighting. One's driving it up, one's driving it down. One's saying, we're going to crash this market, and the other is saying, no, you're not, and we're going to go to whatever length. So what saved the market on Tuesday was the fact that um, the EU, the ECB, European Central Bank, came through and said that they would indeed uh, buy up bonds of Italy and Spain. That these are huge debts that before they had declined to undertake, but they were going to do that after all. So they're basically doing quantitative easing, which is something that's not approved in the Maastricht 
treaty, the whole idea of the EU is supposed to be a fixed amount of money, just like a gold system. I want you to explain a quantitative easing to the public. A lot of people are confused about what it is. Quantitative easing is easing the amount of the pressure on the amount of money or the quantity of money out there. Basically, people call it money, government money printing, but that's not really what it is. What it is in the U.S., when the Federal Reserve has done quantitative easing, it's really an asset swap. So the Federal Reserve decides to buy something and they create credit on their books as the Federal Reserve is allowed to do as the lender of last resort. So basically they create dollars in an account. So QE1, quantitative easing one, was all about buying mortgage-backed securities, <coughs> excuse me, toxic debt off the bank, books of the banks, because there was a credit freeze and they couldn't meet their capital requirements. And so um, there was 2.1 trillion, I think. Mm, I'm not sure my favorite. No, I'm sorry, 1.2 trillion of, um, of QE1 used to buy mortgage-backed securities off the books of the banks. So now, instead of having these securities, the banks had 1.2 trillion in excess reserves and the Federal Reserve had the securities. So, so from the point of view of the bank, it makes very little difference whether they have, well, it's more obvious, let's talk about QE2. On QE2, the Federal Reserve bought government securities, medium range government securities from the banks. So, so the banks now had the dollars and the Federal Reserve had the, had the government bonds. So nothing's really changed except the form in which the money is held. In other words, the banks haven't, don't have any more money than they had before. Before they had, in that case, it was 600 billion. So before they had 600 billion in um, medium term government debt, federal debt, and now they had that sum in dollars, which are Federal Reserve notes, which are another form of debt. A note is a promissory note. So it's the promise of the Federal Reserve as opposed to the promise of the federal government. But, but the, 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 the size of their balance sheet is the same. They've just swapped. They basically monetized some asset on the books of the banks, turned it into money. Okay, so bring us back to S&P and what you were saying. Okay, so in the ECB decided to do this quantitative easing to, to ease up the pressure on their banks. And that reversed this potential collapse of the of the market, and then it, it went back back and forth like that. The struggle between these two powers. So I looked to see who who was responsible for the for the downgrade, and it was the CEO in charge of uh, S and P was had interestingly uh, been to the Bilderberger meetings, and so had the man who had was responsible for. Uh, the collapse on Thursday. I don't know if it. I, I'm in the stock market, and I lost more money that day than I've ever lost ever in stocks. And it, it was it had it had to do with the the um, the ECB and the fa and the well. There was a plan to save the European banks that were in so much trouble by relieving them of the mark to market rule with respect to sovereign debt. And that plan was thwarted by this man, other man who um, 
had also been to the Bilderberger. He was also a Bilderberger attendee. So then I looked to see what the uh, what the plan of the ECB, or, sorry, of the Bilderbergers was, what the um, agenda of the Bilderbergers was. And you can get that from Daniel Estulin, who manages to either, I don't know how he gets the information, but he always seems to know what they've done at their meetings. The Bilderbergers are a group of globalists. They're, they're private, um, big-moneyed, uh, the various big-moneyed interest bankers and politicians and Supposedly, it's just a social group, and nobody's allowed to know what's actually happened there, but big, important people all go there, and they seem to direct how, what policies are made after that. So anyway, the, the agenda of the Bilderbergers goes back to, in the 1950s, there was a man called George Ball who attended, who was, a, I think he was Assistant Secretary of State. George Ball said that their goal was the world company. So they're aiming for global ownership, not necessarily global government so much as they want to own everything. A, a group of interlocking corporate, uh, corporate cartels that will own everything privately. And in that way, they'll have circumvented government. Governments will be irrelevant because the ownership of all the big, everything people need to survive will be in the hands of these large cartels. You mean from seeds owned by Monsanto to water to housing to land to everything? Right. The way to, right. Food, water. I did an interview with John Williams from shadowstats.com, government statistics that have been unreported and he said a very startling thing to me the other day. He said, not only is the GDP reported wrongly, so is unemployment. He said, you could actually tax the Americans to the nth degree, and you could cut spending down to zero and never be able to balance anything. It's that out of hand now. What do you think about that? Well, of course, there's no way we can pay off a $15 trillion debt. He said all the people that are running for government, you know, that are trying to come into the next election and all the promises that are made on each side, he said mm -hmm. we could have sorted it some years ago, but now it is so out of hand. It's like this galloping horse that's going hundreds and thousands of miles an hour. It's so unrecoverable the way we're looking at it. And I just wondered what you think about that. Well, I agree. The problem is we're looking at it wrong. I, th I think there's no problem with the debt. The debt and the money supply are the same. In fact, the debt is our money supply. All money is created as a debt, except for coins, which is only $1 billion, which is a mere token, literally. Token. You know that what you're saying is kind of revolutionary, so bear with us. So we have a $15 trillion debt. We have a $15 trillion money supply. They're the same thing. The government's debt is the people's money. In other words, what the, what the government debt is, let's go back to the Pennsylvania model, where they actually literally issued money to pay for goods and services. So let's say you had your soldiers, you paid them for their services, and these are just little receipts acknowledging, we the community acknowledge that you have done whatever, $1,000 worth of, of service to the community and therefore here are, here are your thousand dollars worth of receipts go out and spend them in the community 
And that's what money is. It's an acknowledgement by the community of goods and services delivered to the community and a debt owed in return. So it used to be that banks issued bank notes, which their promise were their promises to pay gold. That became Federal Reserve notes, which were the promise of the Federal Reserve to issue what now is not backed by anything except the credit of the nation. So it's the nation acknowledging that we owe you something because you've given something to us. So when the government pays money, when they go into debt, what they should be doing is just paying the money outright. They should have done it like the Pennsylvania colonists did, where they should just print the money and say, all right, you've all served your, you worked for us for a year, here's your pay, and you know, we're printing the money, this is your pay, acknowledging you've done the work, go out and spend it in the community, and then that's that circulates as the national money supply. Now, that would obviously become inflationary unless you pulled it back in some way. So... So you can pull it back in taxes, which is what we do. Now you may say, well, people aren't taxed 100% of their of their money, but they actually are. Here's the reason this works. Explain it to us. Well, let's just, let's just say hypothetically, you pay $1,000 to employees of the state and they go out and spend that $1,000. Well, the turnover of that $1,000 could be 10 times, you know, in a, in a good economy. When you say the turnover could be 10 times, what does that mean? Well, let's say you take the money, you pay the grocer. Okay. The grocer pays the trucker that brought the stuff. The trucker pays the farmer. So, and the farmer pays, you know, they all, the farmer goes out and buys the things that he needs. So this money circulates in the community. And every time it goes from one worker to another, that is income to that worker who then pays taxes on it. Okay. So if 10 people use the same money, the same $1,000 circulates among 10 people who all pay a 10% tax, the government will get back the whole $1,000 in the end. So, And then they can pay the same $1,000 over again, and they'll get back the same $1,000. So it does work. Just, just taxes is enough to get back everything you put out there in the form of government spending. But what I think is a neater solution is to allow the government to actually make stuff you know if you actually had things that are serviceable things that should be the commons you know that should be owned collectively credit is one so if the government were the bank and the government got the interest like they did in pennsylvania that is a big form of income right there and then things like water railroads are a natural collective ownership thing because you don't want competing railroad tracks, you know, you want one set of railroad tracks that goes everywhere. So there's certain things, oil, that, that type of thing could be natural monopolies that belong to the people collectively. So then instead of sort of wincing because you have to pay some percentage of your income all the time and it doesn't maybe seem fair because you're supporting maybe some people that don't work you would be literally paying for the things you used. And so it seemed much more fair. Or you could do both. You know, you could have less taxes and also let the government make some money. We, we had the military right now, which is the, the biggest business in the country. and In the world. <laughs> yeah, it's sheer socialism. I mean, it's, it's our biggest socialist engine. The government is paying the people, paying for their 
their health care, paying for their retirement. The reason we can't wind down the military is it's this big business that keeps a lot of people employed. I guess this was the area where Peter Schiff went crazy in the interview with you. I can't even say it was an interview because he didn't let you speak. But he went crazy because by doing this, as you explained, this would also grow the government, which makes a lot of people crazy. And I have to tell you, even myself, I cringe at the thought of it, this overreaching organism that's already overstepping its boundaries the devil's in the details, from the pharmaceutical medical system to the stuff that's dumped in our water supplies. And that's what makes me concerned. They dump fluoride, they dump all these chemicals, even antidepressants into our water supplies. These are government agencies. And so this scares me, and I'm sure I'm not the only one. I'm sure this makes some other people wince. What do you say to that? Well, our government agencies are pretty much captured by, it's called regulatory capture, they're captured by the big corporations that they're supposedly regulating, that they've managed to change the laws to, to serve them, rather. But, it, but if you had a government that, first of all, if it was self-funding, so it wasn't dependent on all this money, the reason money owns the government right now, fine, big financiers own the government, because that's the only place you can get the money, you have to go to private um, bankers and private corporations to get the money to fund your campaign so that you can even be a politician. But if the government were allowed to have what should be a natural public um, function of overseeing production of money, they, it could money the political process could be funded publicly, and therefore they wouldn't be dependent on these big corporations. They could be independent of them. I mean, you would just have to redesign your whole system. Right now the system is corrupt, but it could be made. It should be a cooperative. It should be of the people, by the people, for the people. I'm, I'm here in Switzerland right now, and I'm going to Mondragon in Spain. Beautiful on my way back. And that's a cooperative community. It's quite large. I don't remember how many. I mean, it's it's huge business now. Mondragon is huge. Would you gather some pamphlets from there for me? (laughs) I love what they've done. That is an incredible model. There's even a book on Mondragon. Yeah. So so that's the, the idea that we're not talking about the government as them taking from us. The government is us. And if we could get back our government, we could have a government that serves us. Do you think that having a state-run bank as a model, let's say one in California got done. I believe this is going to happen. Are you going to run that bank? Are you going to get involved more intimately to make sure this continues the way that you're seeing it? What's going to be your involvement? I'm just a writer. And I do see, I do have a vision of how things should be. And that's what that's what I, right now I'm writing a book on public banking specifically. It's a sequel to Web of Debt. But I'm sort of recombining that same information that I had before, plus a lot of new information. But anyway, it's the reason I like to write is that it's all organic, you know, and it, writing for me is a vehicle that allows me to actually see what's, what's happening. You know, I pull pieces together and then I see there are other pieces missing. And then, then I see a larger picture picture and a larger. So really what, what I do is just write. (laughs) But, but I think that there are a lot of people that are inspired to, to carry on with this, 
this project. And particularly, it looks to me like we're heading for worse times. And when it's always when things fall apart that public, that popular movements are formed and things change in a way that you would never expect them to be able to change so quickly. I think your talk at Mondragon is going to be very, very interesting. Now, are you going to have that taped? Oh, I'm not actually doing a presentation. I'm just interacting with the banking people. So, Well, get as much as you can from their model and have them give you some of their books because their model is like none other I've ever heard of in the world. I think that even D. Hawk, who was the founder of Visa, talked about them in his book in terms of a cooperative model. And I mean, it lent itself to creating all of these jobs and all these different entities that do different things, these cooperative entities from food to everything. Do you see public banking in the United States being able to create a different credit criteria with the number of people that have lost their houses, lost their cars and lost their jobs? Most people in America aren't going to be able to qualify to even get cars. So we may even need new credit criteria. Well, that's where that's what I think they should use quantitative easing for. The, the Federal Reserve should step up and start buying things in the in the real economy. They could buy up single fam, family dwellings and relieve the glut, and you know they could buy them up and rent them back to the people that can't afford to own but need a place to live. It's kind of scary. What do you think about our debt to China? How much debt we have to China and how many notes China's holding of our U.S. dollars? Well, I don't see that as a threat. <laughs> I mean, they've got, they're holding them. They've got it. They can sell them if they want and they haven't sold them. So what they want, they're holding our bonds and we're paying them interest. We'd be better off cashing them out if you ask me. Say, all right, now you've got the bonds. We want the bonds back. You give us, the, here's your dollars. Or in other words, when the bonds come due, we do cash them out. That's what we always do. But then we try to borrow the money to replace the bonds. In other words, we issue more bonds. But what the government should do is just pay off the bonds and then don't issue any more. Pay them off with dollars printed by the government. Call it quantitative easing if you want. And they'll go away. They'll, they'll now have $2 trillion in dollars instead of $2 trillion in bonds. And you might say, well, what if that money comes flooding into the system? It would be inflationary. But it's not. If they had wanted to spend that money, they would have spent it. They could easily cash those bonds anytime they wanted to. The reason they don't is because they don't have anything they want to buy with it. They want us to buy their products. <laughs> what do you think about the fact that a lot of people are very afraid of the condition and value of the U.S. currency, the Federal Reserve dollars. What is your take on the status of the dollar? The dollar is losing value. Trust me, I know I'm here in Switzerland where the, the Swiss franc is, I mean, you can barely afford a cup of coffee here these days, but it's more a matter of perception. People think it's because of quantitative easing, but quantitative easing has not added to the money supply. That money is sitting on the books of the banks, the same place it was when it was bonds. Now it's sitting there as dollars. There's now $1.6 in excess reserves sitting on the books of the banks, and they're not lending. So that money is not going anywhere. It's not going out into the economy and competing for goods and services and driving up the prices. The reason that gold and silver and oil and food are are going up is that as people perceive the dollar is becoming weaker, they think there's going to be hyperinflation. And so they pull their money out of the dollar and they put them into 
assets that they perceive as being better bets. So the hot money is all, they're not going to go into real estate because that's collapsed. And so they've, come, they've put the money into commodities, including food, which is driving up the cost of food for its, I mean, this is critical for th third world countries where maybe a third of their money goes for food. So when food goes up, they, they can't afford to eat. It's speculation that has caused this to go up. It's not, it's not actually because the, the uh, money supply has been suddenly pumped up. In fact, we're still several trillion dollars short compared to where we were in uh, well, the Federal Reserve's not printing M3 anymore as of 2006, but if you get enough people that perceive that something is losing its value and they perceive a threat of loss, there's a fleeing from the currency. My question is, is this what the powers that be want to no longer use it so it becomes more unstable even and nobody wants it? Instead of them ditching the U.S. dollar, they get all of us to ditch the dollar. That could create a collapse, couldn't it? Right. No, I agree with you. I think that is part of the plot. If there's an agenda, that's part of the agenda to bring down the dollar so that a, a global reserve currency can be substituted, which they plan to control, whoever they are. If that were to happen, God forbid, if that were to happen, what do you think would be used? I know we talked about the IMF basket of currencies and they have their own instrument that they use, but what do you think it's going to be? Do you think we're going to end up being in some type of electronic money that's tracked? Yeah, that, I think that's the plan. It, actually, you know, there is not enough money in the system to cover principal and interest. I mean, we have, as long as we have the system that we have, it has to continually grow. So it's not a bad idea to have a global release valve of that sort. But the problem is, Who's going to control it? What they, the amorphous they want, is supposedly is um, controlled by the IMF, which is you know very manipulated. I mean, it's theoretically public, but it, we know that it's basically controlled by the U.S. and and by the big moneyed interest, or the Bank for International Settlements, which is completely private. It's the central banker's central bank in Basel, Switzerland, two blocks from where I am right now. How perfect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if you could knock on their door. I would not advise it at this time. <laughs> we want to get you to Spain. <laughs> yeah. You know, you never know where your friends can come from, though. Betty Sue Flowers shared many years ago with me, and she said, even people and agencies that you think would be total adversarial relationships, sometimes you can find a good friend or someone who you have favor with or a group that has favor with you to be able to listen to you and to be able to do things for the public good. But I think once an agency shows itself over and over and over again to be against the public good, then you have to take heed. It's an interesting paradox. Well, there's a difference between the agency and the people working there <laughs> because right. my, my daughter actually works with these people. And I mean, she works in, in, uh, financing of she works for a UN NGO and they're they're funding alternative energy development so she knows people from the BIS which are very perfectly well-meaning nice sure. normal just as people from the Federal Reserve people from all these institutions are well-meaning but 
somebody is pulling the strings on some level who we don't know. I mean, you just look at the military. That There's something that's so obviously out of our control. And who who is even in control? We don't even know. We're not allowed to know. Even the president doesn't have a clearance high enough to know some things. I, was it Clinton who tried to find out something and was told he didn't have a clearance? I mean, this is the... Yes. This is the, the man that can push the button and blow us all up. Is not allowed to know. So we know that on some level there, there are control mechanisms that are hidden from us. It's not the ordinary people that are, that are working there that actually might be able to have a, a favorable influence on the place that they work. Given where you're at right now, what you're seeing happening, how long do you think it will take? before the first public bank besides the Bank of North Dakota will be in place or funded? What does it take to fund it? Um, nothing. If they, if they do it properly, you know, you know the CAFR money, the Comprehensive Annual Financial Report that shows that every, every city, every state has tons of money stashed away in these funds that is, is sitting idle or it's just drawing a little bit of interest. Um, that money could be used as the capital. Now, capital is not money that you spend. It's an investment. So the Bank of North Dakota, for example, had a return on investment last year, I think, of 19%. Meanwhile, in the two years following 2008, um, CalPERS lost 25% and 30% with their money in the stock market or in Wall Street, invested in it with Wall Street investment advisors. So what if they had taken that $200 billion and put it instead with the Bank of North Dakota and they were making 19%? Uh, that's the thing. This is a paying investment. So let's say you just took some portion of the CalPERS money or any of this money that's, you don't need it right now. It's just sitting there for a long-term investment. And you decide that a good investment would be to put it in the Bank of North Dakota. And then for deposits, that's the revenues of the state. But again, you're not spending these deposits. You're just putting them in the bank as opposed to putting them in a Wall Street bank. And then you leverage the, the deposit, you leverage the capital using the deposits to clear the checks. That's the way banking works. To create money in the form of credit, you need deposits and capital. And we've got excessive amounts of both in California. But it's just a matter, again, of perception of people understanding how the process works. What are you excited about for 2011 as we come to the next chapter of 2011? Well, I do think all this thing can be, all these things can be worked out that there, I think we're on the verge of a totally different system, a cooperative system like the Mondragon system with public banks and I think that we're on the verge of becoming the human organism. In other words, rather like a beehive where, where we actually, the internet is so connecting. It's so remarkable that we can virtually know everything. I mean, you feel omniscient. Anything you want to ask yourself, you can find the answer on the internet and you can see people all around the world. So you start to feel connected. Like, you know, these people, you like these people. They're not some sort of, foreign, you know, like during World War II, somebody told me who had, who had been in World War II, I said, well, how, you know, what about this, these bombs that dropped on Nagasaki? And 
he said, well, you have to understand, we were told that these were slant-eyed devils. We weren't, they, these weren't people to us. But now you couldn't say that. I mean, you can, you can see for yourself that these are people just like us, that have families just like us, and that suffer just like us. So anyway, I think we're on the verge of a totally new model, and we're in the growing pains, and that's why it's painful. But that's what, what I get excited about, is trying to help the birthing of this, this new, new organism that is our potential, our human potential. It's a pleasure and an honor to be a co-midwife with you. <laughs> and I really thank you for taking your time. That's supposed to be your vacation in Switzerland to be with us and to reunite with us and to have this conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, learning from, and listening to Ellen Brown, the author of The Web of Debt, The Shocking Truth About Our Money System and How We Can Break Free and the chairman of the Public Banking Institute, Banking in the Public Interest. You can go to publicbankinginstitute.org, and you can also visit the Web of Debt by going to webofdebt.com. Ellen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Kim. It's a pleasure.